Good morning. Uh, my name is Jill McNabney, and I have a few announcements for us this morning. Um, starting with, uh, we are now in the month of August, which is crazy to think about, but um, there is a fifth Sunday this month, August 29th, and so on that fifth Sunday, we will be doing a baptism Sunday, um, and there will be details, more details about that coming soon. So we just wanted you to be aware of that. 
Uh, Kesia, who oftentimes is part of our band, she is directing a play at the Ghost Light Theater, and that actually starts this week on Thursday. And so if you're interested in um, going to see her play, uh, we can tell you more about that at the Hub afterwards. But one thing you might want to be aware of is that on Sunday, August 8th, Mike Gathright will be facilitating a discussion after the play. Um, so if you want to be a part of that, the 8th might be the day for you to go to that play. Um, and then finally, uh, we just want to encourage you, if you have any questions or you want to learn anything uh, else about us or just come talk to us, uh, we will be around at the Hub afterwards. And please stop by and see us. Okay, thanks. Good morning. Good morning. I'm going to 
don't know if you were here last time, my technology failed, so I'm going to make sure this is working, and if it's not, I'm just going to walk away. Um, good morning. First of all, I'd like to start as a uh, Detroit Tigers fan. I just would like to welcome my fellow Cubs fans into the world of mediocrity once again. Um, it is a comfortable place to be. You just learn to care about other things. So welcome back. Um, wow, they really sold the farm, didn't they? That was brutal. Anyway, uh, one, one, I want to want to follow up on a, another announcement um, from earlier that Jill said on August 29th we're having our our baptism, our baby dedication. If you want to learn more about that, about Storyline's posture towards baptism, and uh, or learn more about what it might look like for you to get baptized, come see me or or Jen, and we'll get you connected with Mike. We'll get connected with get you connected with that Sunday uh, really easily. So, anyway, so I. I've been having a lot of deja vu lately. I don't know, I don't know if anybody's experienced this before, um, but it's this feeling like the moment you're in, you've lived before, right? It's like a sequence of events that feels really familiar, you know, like if it's, as if it's already happened. Um, it's, it's not a feeling as if you're in a rhythm or a routine. Like, for instance, every Tuesday, I try to mow my grass because the, the yard waste comes on Wednesdays, and I don't like the grass barrels stinking up my trash cans. Like, that feels familiar every single week. It's a routine. It's a rhythm. This, this is something different that I've been experiencing. I'm talking about the moments that I've never lived before, experience, uh, experiences I've never had, spaces I've never been in, and they feel like, they feel like memories, right? Almost like a, an out-of-body experience where I'm watching myself live in the moment as if it's happening like right now in real time. It's, it's incredibly a strange thing, and I've noticed two things about these instances that have happened over the last six or so months. One, um, it's really been isolated to that. Like I can't think of it times before in my life uh, where I've been having these types of deja vu things. It's only been over the last six months, and it always involves Bo. It always involves our son, Bo. Uh, you see, really over the last 12 to 18 months, uh, is this something I'm doing wrong, Mike? The squeaking? No, it just is what it is. Okay, cool. Technology just loves me. It's great. Um, over the past 12 to 18 months, we've, we've actually had to start parenting, right? We've actually had to start trying to figure out how to discipline and how to parent. Uh, the first eight, like 16 to 18 months are really... They're not easy, I don't want to say that. They're very difficult, but they are simple, right? Keep our children fed, keep them dry, and you keep them happy. But at about the 18-month mark, you actually have to start figuring stuff out. You start have to discipline, you start have to creating boundaries and all of that. And for Bo, this meant he started to run, and he started to run very fast, and he discovered water and he discovered dirt, and he discovered what happens when you mix those two things and bring them inside. And then he fell in love with popsicles, and he fell out of love with baths. And it's just been a really interesting season to be a parent. You see, Bo is three, but he's going on 33. And multiple times a week, Allie has to remind, or Allie just looks at me, right? And she says, do you know what you're doing? Like, do you have any idea what we're supposed to be doing here? And I never do. Now, we're, we're fairly lucky. Bo is, a, Bo is a great kid. He's not just a great kid overall. He's a great, great kid. He has this very kind and sweet disposition. And even in the most difficult moments, it, 
it's pretty normal and predictable for this stage of his life, right? So this isn't a complaint as much as it is, I don't know, it's, well, yeah, it's exactly, it's a complaint. Because being a parent to a three-year-old is just hard. Um, but it brings me back to this idea of deja vu, right? Because him and I, we have to have a lot of talks. We have to have, a, my dad called them lectures. We had to have a lot of these talks. Um, like any kid his age, he, he loses control a little bit. He loses control of his emotions and his actions. And in some moments, it's like trying to wrestle an alligator, right? He's really tall and really long and has these big, strong, powerful legs and an even stronger willpower. And he's beginning to remind me of somebody very familiar, right? <laughs> um, and so anyway, deja vu. It's in these moments where frustration and that rage inside me begins to manifest as a parent. Like, stop putting that in your mouth, for goodness sakes. And it just feels like you're blowing bubbles in a hurricane. And that's when these moments come. And I bend down on one knee, and I try to get him settled. And I look at him in the eye, and that's when it happens. That's when it hits me. It's like, I've been here before. But the memory, it's not, from, it's not from, from my perspective, it's from his, right? I'm all of a sudden seeing this moment as my toddler age self, and I'm staring at my dad. And it's really, really, really wild. And if, and if I let myself pause for just a moment when it happens and I lean into it, I'm able to say the words that I would want to hear instead of the words that I'd want to say. So I don't know if that's as much deja vu, right? As much as, as maybe it's just a deep desire to not screw this up and to not screw him up. And I catch myself having way too high expectations for myself as a dad and for him as a kid. And Allie has to remind me daily that three-year-olds, that this is just how they are, that they can't drive themselves to daycare. That's not reasonable, Paul. Um, but that's, that's what parenting is, right? It's this, it's this three-way Venn diagram. It's this convergence between a desire to succeed, the expectation of what is to come, and this wisdom from the past. And it's hard to compartmentalize when emotions get so high, but with a little bit of luck and a little bit of introspection, I can, I can sometimes, not every time, separate myself just enough to see that there's a thread tying everything together. Right, that this moment is equally it, that this moment will equally affect moments to come, and is affected by moments in the past. Just so pretty to think 
Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. So, so Luke, the book of Luke in the Bible has been the, uh, has been the invisible string that has connected all of our talks this, uh, this summer. Do you, you see what I did there? It's like expert level transition right there. Um, <laughs> No, but yes, Luke, we've been, we've been going chapter by chapter over the last three months, uh, and that has brought us to Luke chapter 8, which is where we're going to be this morning. So now up to this point in Luke, uh, you, may, you may have noticed like we're getting these, these micro stories, these little kind of, these, this shotgun blast of story after story after story about who Jesus is. And Luke is trying to be really, really efficient, as efficient as he possibly can in communicating who this person named Jesus actually is. And now, more specifically, Luke is trying to connect the dots to his primarily Jewish audience in Rome that this guy was who he said he was. Luke was not writing, as much as, much as we wait, we feel, maybe we feel that in the book, he's not necessarily writing for us in Stevensville, Michigan in 2021. He has a very specific audience that he is trying to reach to. It's a pr- primarily Jewish audience in Rome. Another thing we have to understand is that 700 years before the birth of Jesus, there was this prophet named Isaiah who wrote about the coming of a a Messiah, of a Savior who would come and release the Jewish nation from oppression and slavery. And so everyone who would have read or heard these stories from Luke, the first time they would have heard it, they would have, they would have had this prophecy ringing in the back of their mind, right? This was, this was the, the scripture that they read at holidays and around campfires and around the dinner table, right? They turned it into songs and they turned it almost into myth and legend. And so Isaiah chapter 9, it reads like this. Maybe you've heard this before. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You, and when he says you, he's talking about God, you will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders, and you will break the oppressor's rod. And maybe this is the part we've heard before, right? For, for unto us a child has been born, a son has been given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and his peace will never end, and he will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all of eternity. So these words were written and spoke for the first time 700 years before Jesus was born in this tiny town of Bethlehem on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. 700 years is a really, really long time. That's 28 generations. It's three times the age of the United States of America. Can you imagine? Just imagine for a second the kind of interpretations that would have been passed down over 700 years, right? Like what kind of pictures and images would this people group started to develop about this Messiah and this, sa- and this Savior after 28 generations? At the time of this prophecy, the time that Isaiah made this prophecy, the, the Jewish nation was in the midst of yet another round of slavery, and this time it was at the hands of the Babylonians. And soon Babylon would be conquered by Persia, and the Jews would, be have, would have a new oppressor. 
And then Persia would be overtaken by Greeks, and there's this little brief period of peace. And then all of a sudden, here comes the Romans. And again, these Jew this Jewish people, this Jewish tribe, finds themselves in slavery at the hands of an oppressive empire. And so 700 years after this prophecy, I wonder what kind of Messiah, what kind of Savior would they have been waiting for? My guess, if I pontificate a little bit here, is that he would have been imagined to be a pretty prominent military leader, right? Born into power, born into privilege, and used that power and privilege to destroy whatever oppressor, oppressor was, uh, was holding Ju um, Jerusalem and the Israel nation in slavery. And he'd be restoring the promised land through his might and his power and his military into this ideal Hebrew utopia. So you can see that maybe a Messiah that was born to an unwed and outcast teenage mother in a horse's stable in the most oppressed geographical region of its time may have not been the Messiah that these Jewish people would have wanted. At the very least, he wasn't the Messiah that they were expecting. And the Bible, it's full of stories of this unexpected Jesus. Time after time, Jesus surprises his followers with, with where he goes and who he associates himself with. And that's where these stories from Luke start to come into play. Because Luke wants us, he wants his audience to see that just because this Jesus isn't who we expected doesn't mean he isn't the one that Isaiah was talking about 700 years earlier. It doesn't mean that he isn't the one that's meant to save all of us. Okay, that was the intro. Now we're going to get to Luke chapter 8. So Luke chapter 8, here we are. It's, it opens up, the, the, the chapter opens up with verses talking about who is following Jesus. It's almost kind of like a roll call or a roster. And verse 4 says that a large, a large crowd had started to gather, and people were coming from town after town to hear this guy named Jesus preach, and to watch him heal, and to, and to, and to hear his teachings. And with each day, this crowd was getting bigger and bigger. And so imagine this giant crowd following him around the Galilean desert, hanging on every word he has to say. And you might start to imagine that, that, that maybe this is exactly what you would expect from somebody who is trying to start a movement or to create a new religion. And if that was Jesus' goal, it was definitely working. Right? He had, this, he had amassed this great following of people that were coming from all over to hear what he had to say. But one day, after preaching and teaching on the, shore, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he turns to his disciples and says, let's go to the other side of the lake. Now, wait a second. That's not what's supposed to happen next here in the story. You see, I can't imagine the disciples would have been like, God, Jesus... This is where the crowd is. This is just starting to get big. Why would you want to leave now? So how can this Messiah, this savior of the Jewish world, start a revolution if he leaves this following behind just as it's starting to get big? And I got to think that maybe it's because that's not what Jesus came for. That's maybe, and maybe that's not who Jesus came for. Now, admittedly, I might read, be reading too much into this. I have been known to be a little dramatic. But if you give me a second, and try to, I'm going to try to convince you why going to the other side of the lake was actually a huge deal. Because at first glance, it might just seem like he's going for a sailboat ride with some friends. But let's examine it further. So Luke chapter 8 says this. They arrived in the region of the garrisons across the lake from Galilee. 
that's it. We're going to stop right there. Because that is an incredibly heavy sentence. You see, they went across the lake to the region of the garrisons. And the first people who would have heard this story, their ears would have perked right up. You see, the Sea of Galilee, if, I had, if we had like a projection system here, I, I, would, I would show an image of this, but I'm instead going to do interpretive hand motions to set the stage here. So, so you have the Sea of Galilee right here. It's like an oval. And you've got the Jordan River that's coming north into the sea and coming south out of it. So like there's this dividing line of the Jordan River right down the Sea of Galilee. And in the western part, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, it's called Galilee. It's this region. And this is where we see Capernaum and Nazareth and Bethlehem and all these different places, these settings from Scripture. And over here we see Jerusalem. The Mediterranean Sea is kind of right here, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River coming down. So when Jesus says he's crossing the lake to the other side, he's coming to the eastern side of the Jordan River, which was occupied by the Greeks. And so, and so on this side, on the eastern part, I swear this geography lesson is going to matter, I swear. So on the eastern side, is a, it's called the Decapolis, or the Ten Cities. These were ten tribes of Greece that were living on the eastern shore of, of the Sea of Galilee. And so when Jesus says, let's go to the other side of the lake, he's not only leaving his crowd of Jewish people, he's baffling everybody because he's not going to, the, to where the people that he was meant to save were. Right In Galilee, the dominant religion was Judaism. It was controlled by a Jewish government, and if you were a Jew in the first century, this region, this region of Galilee, would have meant, it would have meant order, and it would have meant orthodoxy, right? It was comfortable, and it was safe. Yes, it was occupied by Rome, but it was still this kind of little bubble of bliss where they could still live and breathe and believe the way that they wanted to. It was still believed that God looked favorably on the people of this religion. However, the Decapolis, right, this, this land of the garrisons, it was not that. It was the land of Gentiles. This is where the prodigal son would have gone. It was a place of deplorable debauchery. It's where rebellious teenagers of the day went to go, you know, get under the skin of mom and dad. In the eyes of the Jewish people in the first century, the Decapolis, it represented chaos and disorder. And coincidentally, this is a place where Jesus spent a considerable amount of time. So when Jesus said, let's leave this crowd, this following of Jews in Galilee, and cross the lake to the Decapolis, the land of chaos and Gentiles, this was not a normal thing to do. It didn't fit the narrative. And if, imagine for a second the look on the disciples' faces, right? You want us to go where? You want us to leave our families and everything we know in this crowd of people to go for who? But Jesus didn't come just for the disciples. And he didn't come for this crowd of people in Galilee. He came for everybody. He came for you and he came for me and he came for the people on the other side of the lake. And so that's why he crosses the Sea of Galilee. And the Bible says this. As Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. And for a long time, he had been homeless and naked and living in the tombs outside of the town. So this is who they find when they arrive at the other side of the lake. 
exactly who they thought they would find. This man perfectly represented the kind of person that people in Galilee would have thought of when they thought of the Decapolis. Like Luke doesn't even give him a name. There's three different versions of this story in scripture and none of the authors give this guy a name. And so I wonder, I wonder if this demon-possessed man is supposed to re represent something bigger, something much larger. It's more of a generalization. Um, it's not that he didn't exist, but Luke is trying to tell a bigger story here. Anyway, what do we know about him, right? We know that he's possessed by demons, and we know that he's naked and he's living in the burial tombs. And my guess is that he didn't end up there on his own. It's, it's very likely that he was outcast from his community because of all the chaos that he was adding to the life of his loved ones. And so he was sentenced to live outside of any public area, which is why we find him here in the tombs. And then, strictly from a Jewish perspective, any interaction with this man would have been spiritually scandalous, right? Not only was he a Gentile, but he was unclothed and living in a tomb. And Jewish culture demanded a really, really strict adherence to a burial ceremony. And for sure, this man in this tomb did not adhere to those principles. One version of the story in Mark puts it this way, when describing this man, he says, he lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with the chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered the burial caves in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. Imagine again the disciples' face for a second, right? They're stepping out of a boat. They're soaking wet from this storm that just came. That's a little bit earlier in Luke chapter 8. They're confused at why they're there. And then they hit the shoreline and step right into a 1980s horror film. Like, it's, it had to be one of the most discomforting moments for the disciples. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for this instant. But Jesus has a very different perspective here, right? He sees this man's suffering. He recognizes him as outcast, right, and vulnerable. Yes, he sees him as unclean, but he also sees him as infected and hurting. He saw the shape that this man was in, and he, uh, that was in, and he looked at him with compassion. And I don't know about you, but, but that feels really eerily relatable. Have you, have you ever found yourself in a space of loneliness, a space that you didn't ask for or that you didn't choose? A space where something inside of you just could not be contained? An addiction, an anxiety, a relationship, a job, a debt, a disease, right? The reality is that all of us have these demons, that when left alone, they become unhinged and they drive us crazy. And this is the man that Jesus finds when he gets out of the boat. This is the person he leaves this giant crowd in Galilee for because it's this person that he came to find. The story goes on. As soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked. He's talking about the demon-possessed man. He shrieked and fell down in front of him. And then he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? Please, I beg you, don't torture me. This man had become so accustomed and so comfortable with his demons that when a cure arrived, he feared it. He shrieks in terror. Because what would healing mean? It would mean change. 
It would mean something unknown, something different. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder what healing would have meant for him. Imagine all the people that tried to heal him, right? That tried to help him by restraining him. I wonder if healing must have felt like torture to this guy. But Jesus does heal him. He looks at him with compassion, he heals him, and he releases him from his demons. And as he does, there were some herdsmen that were watching everything that was going on. And the Bible says this, they, the herdsmen, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen told, told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the garrisons asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. Let me read just a little bit of that again. This man, this demon-possessed man, was sitting at the feet of Jesus, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. All of the people of the region of the garrisons asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. I wonder how often we resist and reject and miss healing opportunities or fresh possibilities to move forward and to change. It's almost as if those have become a new standard, the new normal operating procedure for which we live our lives, right? Where the chaos becomes our order. And we become so resistant to any kind of disruption to the ways of life that we've been accustomed to. And this community of people had gotten so used to this demon-possessed man living in solitude at the edge of this lake in the burial caves that they had a place for him, right? They knew how to deal with him and his chaos. So when they see him sitting there fully clothed and in his right mind, it's uncomfortable. It's a disruption of what they've come to know as familiar. It's definitely not what they expected to see. So here's where it gets even a little bit more interesting. So Jesus returns to the boat and he leaves crossing back to the other side of the lake. But the man who had been freed by the demons begs to go with him. This is what Jesus said. But Jesus sent him home saying, no, go back to your family and tell them everything God has done for you. So he went through all the town proclaiming the great things Jesus had done for him. That is unexpected. Because maybe what it looks like to follow Jesus doesn't actually look like following Jesus. What this man wants is to get in the boat and to go with Jesus, to go back across the lake. He wants to follow Jesus. He wants to take a leap of faith and become Jesus' disciple. Because that's what he thinks is best for him. But Jesus, Jesus has a different plan here. He tells the man to stay behind and to tell his story. He didn't ask him to read a list of books or participate in a litmus test, a litmus test of rituals or go off and study at some seminary. All he needed from him was to tell his story and embody a new kind of vulnerability to take a leap of grace back into the world that threw him out, to speak his truth about the freedom he had received through the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, you have been freed. Now go and tell everyone as if you were shouting it from the mountaintop. Mm-hmm.
against the rush of grace descending from the source of its supply. Cause in the highlands and the heartache, it neither more or less inclined. I would search and stop at nothing. You're just not
Wow. Thanks, guys. That was awesome. If we read ahead in the story just a little bit, a little bit of foreshadowing here, we, stop, we find the story of Jesus again. We find him crossing the lake again back to the Decapolis. And the Bible says this, A deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him, and the people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. Jesus led him away from the crowd so that they could be alone. And I don't know about you, but to me that sounds an awful lot like deja vu. Right? There's a crowd. There's a crowd waiting for him, a crowd begging to be in his presence. But how could that be? This is the same place that just two chapters earlier, this crowd was begging him to leave. They couldn't be more scared of him. And so I wonder, could it be that this demon-possessed man actually listened and shared with everybody what had happened to him? He actually told his story of freedom. And in doing so, invited others into the same leap of grace that is found in Jesus. You see, what God wanted for this crowd over here in Galilee, he wanted for this man on the other side of the lake, and he wants it for us too. He wants it for you, and he wants it for me. What Jesus was doing had nothing to do with having the largest crowd or the most disciples as a largest sanctuary. It was about going to where God wasn't supposed to go for the people that God wasn't supposed to be for. And this is who Jesus was, and it is who he still is today. And when we experience that grace, it's then on us to recognize and respond. We have to let God show up. We have to recognize that it is, in fact, God who crosses the lake for us. It's him who leaps in grace towards us, who dies on the cross for us. And then we have to respond. When Jesus asked this man to stay and share his story, he was asking him not just to live in grace, but to live out that same grace. This is why Jesus came, to be the invisible string of grace that connects the two sides of, a lake, of the lake. He comes to love and to comfort the lonely, to find the lost and to heal the broken. And he comes for us and he crosses the lake for us and he leaps in grace for us so that we can live an abundant life of love and with that, the freedom that comes as well. So may you recognize that God is who he says he is, that he has come for us because he is for us. May you see God's grace in even the most unexpected places and respond accordingly. And may you leap as he leaps with and for us. And may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Have a wonderful Sunday, friends. One quick last announcement here. If you're part of our setup and teardown team, we could just use a couple extra hands if you're available so we can move out of here quickly. There's a little bit of a double booking. So if you're available to help with a couple of extra hands, that'd be great. Have a wonderful Sunday.